Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Psalms as uh, we continue this summer focusing uh, on the Psalms. Just a marvelous place. Uh, I've heard from from lots of different folks how you love going through the Psalms in the summer. But uh, from the old movie, uh, life is like a box of chocolates. Well, so are the Psalms. You just never know what you're going to get. And... Uh, Every week it's a surprise. This week, I came across an article as I was reading this week by a guy named Carl Truman. Carl Truman is a pastor and he's a professor of history at Westminster Theological Seminary. In this article, he wrote this. In the last year, I have asked three very different evangelical audiences what miserable Christians can sing in church. On each occasion, my question has elicited uproarious laughter, as if the idea of a broken-hearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd as to be comical. And yet I posed the question in all seriousness. It was in an article that he wrote called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? I think he's correct. Throughout most of the church's nearly 2,000 year long history, believers have sung the Psalms. And of course, before the church, Jewish believers sang the Psalms for another thousand years before that. The, the Psalter, the, the songbook of the Hebrews and of the church. This book here is a Psalter. A Psalter, and this is in English, an English Psalter was simply taking a psalm, a Hebrew psalm, and translating it and putting it into English, trying to put it into metrical form so it could be sung in English music, and then putting tunes to it. And this was very common in churches up until the last 150 years. This one was published in 1929. And even at the time that it was being published, it was kind of the last of a dying breed of, of songbooks. With these disappearing has vanished the singing of psalms in the churches. And vanished with singing the psalms has vanished the wide range of subjects and emotions that God built into the songbook of the Psalms. If that weren't enough, over the past 30 to 40 years, Christian worship music has changed very much. And I'm not talking about style and contemporary music, but rather most church worship music in the last 30 to 40 years has been almost exclusively praise and worship. Now, I'm all in favor of praise and worship, and I'm all in favor of contemporary music, but as a church, we have lost much. And I'm not saying the church is the chapel of the lake, but the church as a whole in Western Christendom, we have lost much when we lost the singing of the Psalms. In the context of today, Truman's poignant question becomes very relevant. 
What can a miserable Christian sing? When we come to church and everything is praise and worship and happy and clap, what do you do if you're miserable? With that question, we come to today's psalm here, Psalm 130. It's not a long psalm, only eight verses. Pastor Aaron read it in its entirety when we opened the service this morning. And I hope you'll turn there. We want to work our way quickly through the psalm. Just in eight verses, it moves us from the pits up to and and sets us gently upon a high hilltop of joy and gratitude. I hope this morning it will also lead us to a meaningful time of, of celebration and of the Lord's Supper at the end of our service this morning. As we go through the psalm quickly, I want to just note five words that I've chosen that I think adequately summarize this psalm and will help us to walk our way through it. Psalm 130, follow along as I read the first two verses. Out of the depths I cry to You, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let Your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. In the Latin version of the Psalter, this particular psalm was given the title De Profundis. In Latin, that means out of the depths. See, where this psalm writer is, he begins here in the depths. He says, out of the depths I cry to you. He is at bottom. He has to, as the old saying goes, look up to see down. From the depths, there's no place to go but up. This psalm is one answer to Truman's question, what what does a miserable Christian sing? He sings a psalm like this one. This is the song of a miserable person, someone who is in, and that's my first word to describe this psalm, is despair. There's a couple of great reasons why we should sing a psalm like this one. The first is that this psalm provides a voice for the despairing Christian. For the believer who is at the bottom, who is in the depths, this provides a voice, a song to sing back to God when we have no other words to say for the pain, the suffering, the agony, the despair is just too heavy and too hard. It gives a voice and words. There's another good reason why we as the church, even the church in the 21st century, should sing a psalm like this. And that is that it not only provides a voice for the despairing, but it provides preparation for those who aren't despairing. See, there's a good likelihood that you're here this morning and you are not in despair. You may be. But many of you are here today and quite frankly, things are going pretty well. Everybody in the family is well, healthy. You've got a job. The bills are paid. Food on the table. Your needs are met. Life is going very well. 
But this psalm provides a reality check for all of us in that condition because the reality is that the Christian experience has both heights and depths, mountaintops and valleys. And sooner or later, there will be difficult times. And a psalm like this reminds us of that reality and helps prepare us for when times like that come. So we ought to sing psalms like this one. Out of the depths, I cry to You. O Lord, hear my voice. Verse 3, the second big word this, as I look at this psalm. Verse 3, he says, If You, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist doesn't tell us what has brought him to the point of despair. All kinds of things can get us depressed. All kinds of things can bring us to the depths. It can be poverty, financial problems. It can be illness. It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be physical pain. It can be emotional hurt. And the list goes on. But here I think the psalmist gives us a little clue as to maybe what has brought him to the depths in this psalm. If I read him correctly, his problem here is guilt. An overwhelming realization of the enormity of his sin. For he says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, God, if you, if you kept track of every sin, and then deal with me as I deserve. I'm guilty as charged. And you'll throw the book at me. This, by the way, is the realization to which every person on earth should come. There is a holy and righteous judge. A holy and righteous God who is judge before whom everyone will give account. As Hebrews says, it is appointed the man once to die and afterwards comes the judgment. And before a holy and righteous God to whom we should give account, we should end up like this guy. Lord, who can stand? Who can do that? It, every person should come to that point, but very few do. Instead, what most people do is we look in the mirror, we see that we are flawed. Not just on the outside, we know that we have messed up. As Paul writes in Romans, it's, it's written into our conscience. It's written into every standard by which we judge everyone else. All of us fail by every measure, even if we don't know God and know His standards. All of us know we fail, we sin. We're guilty. And so when we look at that, we, we, the first thing that most people try to do is rationalize it away. Well, yeah, I know I'm flawed, but look over there. I'm not as bad as him. Not as bad as her. Overall, I'm pretty good. But I wonder, are we really pretty good? I wonder what would happen if somebody followed you around for a week 
One week. 24-7, they follow you around. They pull out a little notebook. <laughs> and in it, they go along and they start to write down every sin. Every unkind word. Every, every time that you just shade the truth just a little bit. Every bit of gossip. <laughs> every selfish deed goes down. Every minute stolen from your employer when you were doing something other than what you were supposed to be doing. Every time you fudged the, you know, the scale or the standard a little bit to get a little more product, or if you're selling to sell a little less, you're just a little dishonest. Not badly, just a little. I mean, what's a few pennies here and there. Every debt that you owed but did not pay, whether it was to a person or whether it was to in taxes, they mark it all down. Just over a week the list starts to grow. But what if they're not just writing down what they see and hear, but they can read your thoughts? Oh my! Every bit of malice, anger, envy, jealousy, every bit of disgust, every bit of Pride. The list is getting longer and longer and longer. Every bit of spite. All those thoughts, even you didn't give voice to them, but you thought them, whether it was to your spouse or your kids or that driver on Interstate 70 who... Not just the, the sins you intended to do, but the ones that you just fell into that happened so accidentally and so quickly. They were just there for a moment and you... So there was willful sins and unintentional sins. There's the outward ones and the inward ones. And if that's not enough, as James says, to him who knows good to do and does not do it, it is sin. And so there's those sins not of only of commission, but the sins of omission. All the things that you should have done, the things that were right to do that you did not do. Let's just take the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How many minutes in the last week did you not do that? Or the second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many times the last week did you not love your neighbor, which isn't just the guy that lives next door, it's the person who lives in the house with you and the person who works next to you. And how many times did you not love your neighbor as yourself? See, the reality is if somebody just wrote down all of our sins over the course of one week, for most of us, we would fill a library. 
And yet God knows not only what we did, how we sinned over the last week, but every minute of every day since the moment we first sucked air into our lungs. And He is not a God who will develop amnesia. (laughs) He will not forget nothing has escaped Him. And the psalmist says, if He gives us what we deserve, we are toast. So he's overwhelmed by his sin. It's the same thing that led Augustine to pray, Save me, O Lord, from myself. It's what led the Apostle Paul to write in Romans, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Amazingly, and Paul undoubtedly was a godly man, Augustine was, I'm sure, a much better man than most of us. Surprisingly, the more godly a man becomes, rather than becoming more impressed with his uprightness, he becomes more acutely and increasingly aware of his sin and of his desperate need for God's grace. C.S. Lewis said it so well this way, When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still within him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his badness less and less. May I say that may be one way to gauge if you're growing in your Christian walk. If you're becoming more and more aware of the evil that still lurks within you, you are probably growing in your Christian walk. If you are becoming less aware of it, you're probably falling more away from Christ. So the psalmist is overwhelmed with despair, maybe from outside circumstances or outside situations, but I think that he is probably most likely in despair because of this inner turmoil over the fact of the reality of his guilt. He's been overwhelmed by that. Verse 4, but, and that's often a marvelous word in Scripture, and it is here, who can stand? If God keeps track of every sin that we've committed, who can stand before a righteous God? But, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's good news here. With God there is forgiveness. And that's the third big word that helps us to summarize this psalm. Forgiveness. There's forgiveness with God. And as Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is holy and He will judge sin, but He is a forgiving God who will forgive those who call on Him. The psalmist marvels at the forgiveness of God. The psalm doesn't explain it, doesn't deal with it, but we do know from the rest of Scripture that that a holy God simply does not dismiss sin. He doesn't simply ignore our sins when He forgives them. Rather, as a holy and just God, He must extract 
full payment for every single sin, even all of those hundreds that you are and I are unaware of that we commit every single day. Everyone must be paid for in full. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. One is enough for the death penalty, but a library full of them. Again, we're hopeless. And yet, God is able to forgive us. How does He do that? Romans 6.23 goes on to say, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is able to forgive our sins because they must be paid for and that is why Jesus came. God Himself became man to come and pay the cost of your sin and my sin. That's what we're going to recognize in a few minutes as we come to the table to the the bread representing His body broken for us, the cup representing His blood shed for us. As there the infinite Creator God in as a man died and as God died infinitely, suffered infinitely for your sin and my sin. Did you notice the surprising word though that he said that with you there is forgiveness and the next little phrase tells us the results or perhaps better, the purpose of that forgiveness. With you there is forgiveness, what does it say? So that you may be feared. That's unusual. What we think is, with you there is forgiveness so that you may be loved. Or with you there is forgiveness so that you may be worshipped. For you there is forgiveness with, with you, I should say, there is forgiveness so that you may be worshipped or adored. But he says, with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. And we wonder, that's kind of odd. How does that work? I like the way that the great old preacher Charles Spurgeon said it. and He explained how this works. It seems to me that when you stand before God, convicted and condemned with the rope, around your neck. And God pardons your sins. Rope is removed. (laughs) You weep for joy and now you hate the evil from which you've been forgiven. And you live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood you've been cleansed. You fear God not because of His punishment. But you fear God because you know He had every reason to condemn you, but He did not. You fear Him because you know that He rightly could have cast your body and soul into hell for all of eternity. Simply put, in my own words, the natural and the proper response to someone who is so condemned and someone who has been so forgiven and so rescued from the death grip of sin, the right response is a fear that transforms life. Or as Thomas Adams said it, no man more truly loves God than he that is most fearful to offend Him. In other words, real love shows up when we're fearful of offending the God who loves us so, the God who rescued us so. 
The fourth word I find in verses 5 to 6. The psalmist goes on, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Big word in these verses is this word hope. Under this, he's waiting with hope. But there's three concepts in this hope. The first is this, only God. Only God can help him. Only God can rescue him and only God can rescue us out of the depths. And the Lord God is at the core of this psalm. Eight times in this psalm, you'll see that he says, Lord, 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 Lord. Eight times in eight verses. That's quite a bit. He's calling him by name. Five of those times you'll notice, and if you've been around church for a while, you'll notice that, that when the word Lord is there in the text, and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, it's in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the name by which we, God revealed Himself to His people. It's the name which God used when He related with His people personally. It's the name God used in His personal relation with people as He made covenant contract with His people. The other three times the word Lord is there, it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d. In Hebrew, it's the word Adonai, which means Sovereign Master. And what the psalmist is telling us is that only God can rescue him. Only God can save us. And, and he has hope in God because the God that he is trusting is Adonai, Sovereign Master. The God who is in control. The God who is in charge. Who is also Yahweh. Who is a God who knows us personally. And He's promises, He's made covenants and promises with us. He is a sovereign God who knows us and will keep His promises because He is sovereign. He's in charge. He can be counted on. But another concept under this hope is you'll notice He uses this word wait again and again. I wait. I wait. And then he says, my soul waits like the watchman waiting for the morning. Not just like, more than the watchman waiting for the morning. And in case we didn't get it the first time, he says it again. More than the watchman waiting for the morning. His point is to let you know that he's waiting and waiting is really hard. Do you guys have a hard time waiting? Amen. He says, I wait. I wait for the Lord. And it's hard. And I'm waiting with expectancy. I'm hoping. I'm waiting. But can you imagine the watchman is the guy who's he's got the he you know drew the short straw. He's got the night shift. He's on the wall. He's the guard looking out there. Has to watch. Keep the night watch. And it's boring. Boring. You know? He's the night watchman in Buffalo, Missouri. <laughs> Nothing happens there. It's in the days before there are even clocks and watches, so you don't know what time it is. Was that an hour? 
Mm, probably just five minutes. <laughs> what do you do? There's the eastern sky. When will the daylight come? When will the daylight come? Oh, I hope it comes soon. Is it morning yet? More than... He's just getting, you know, he's waiting, waiting. And isn't that how it is? when you're in hard times and you're waiting. Time drags on. And yet He says, I wait. I wait in hope, trusting in the sovereign and personal God who has promised, for He will rescue me. Third thing to note is it's as the watchman waits for the morning. The one thing the watchman knows, he doesn't know when the morning's coming, but he knows it's coming. Every morning since God created the world, the sun has come up over there. And I don't know when it's going to come up, but it's going to come up. And see this one who is suffering so. He's in the depths. He's, he's so been so despairing and so depressed. He has, and what, whether it's over some other situation or over his guilt, and he's come before God and he's found forgiveness in God. And so because he's got relationship with God, he's fine. He's placed his hope in God. And he knows that God will keep His promise and he's waiting, knowing that morning will come. It may be a while. It may seem like forever. And it may be difficult, but the reality is sometime the light will begin to dawn and He will again be basking in the warmth of fellowship with the Father Enjoying, you know, I, I, I don't know what, it doesn't say what he's waiting for. If it's his guilt, what's he waiting for? Because doesn't God forgive immediately? Yes. But you and I know there's often a lag time between our feelings and our emotions and reality. It takes a while for our emotions to catch up with truth. He's waiting and it's hard. The last word of the psalm. Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The last word is this. Invitation. See, I bet you're like me. Most of us, when we come across something exciting, we got to tell somebody. The other day, I was in St. Peter's, went to drive, run over there to uh, take care of an errand. And as I'm driving, I pass the service station, I do a double check. Gas was $1.76. I do a U turn. I pull in. I'm looking for the catch. You know, you gotta buy two car washes or something. No, it's $1.76. Fill it up. I saved four bucks because I was on empty. You know what I did? I called a couple of people in the area. I said, hey, you might want to go over to the, uh, you, you might want to head over there. 
Gas is cheap. Something silly is gasoline. But have you ever done something like that? When something's good, you tell somebody. Why is it? The average Christian has never shared their faith in Jesus Christ with another person. I have a feeling it's because we haven't been in the depths over our sin and come to the realization of the the glorious forgiveness that has come to us at an unthinkable price. And then come out of that with the weight of it all off of us and felt that, that, that reality of, I'm free! So we go, you won't, you gotta know this, you need to know Jesus. And so our songwriter, that's what these last two words are. Oh, Israel! Hey! Woohoo! Hey! Israel! He's using the name for the nation, but I think he's talking to individuals. He's saying, hey, you, you need to know this. There's forgiveness with God. Did you know that? Your sins can be forgiven. Look at this. He says, oh Israel, hope in the Lord. Find hope in the Lord. For, you know, some of you, somebody here maybe, thinking this morning, I know I've messed up my life doesn't take a rocket scientist to look in the mirror and see that I'm a sinner and I've messed up. But you may be thinking this morning, I've messed up so badly. I've messed up so often. I've hurt so many people. I've shaken my fist at God and I've spit in His face. Is there really hope for somebody like me? And the psalmist is screaming, yes. <laughs> Hope in the Lord. Did you see what he said? In, in the Lord there is steadfast love. That's In Hebrew it's the word hesed. It means the faithful love of God. The love that you can't run away from. The love that never fails. The love that doesn't quit. It's steadfast love. With the Lord there is redemption. There is salvation. There's rescue from sin. But don't miss the little modifier, the describing word for redemption. With Him there is, what's it say? Plentiful redemption. What that means is you can't exceed it. So you may think that you're too bad, too far gone, but His grace is bigger and deeper. Not sure who wrote this psalm. My guess is it's David. It doesn't say. The next psalm is written by him and the the language between the two psalms is very similar. If anybody understood grace that was undeserved, it's David. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He lied about it, covered it all up, or tried to. And yet God's grace rescued him. The Apostle Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. He was a murderer. See, God's always been in the business of rescuing the least likely and the most undeserving. And so, the psalmist extended an invitation to all Israel and Jesus is extending an invitation to you 
and I in his, in his place am saying, do you know Jesus? That's the most important question I can ask today. Do you know the forgiveness of Jesus? Have you trusted Him as your Savior? Because He's inviting you right now. You can do it where you sit in your own heart. Just tell God, yeah, I realize, God, I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I need a Savior. Because if I don't have a Savior, if I have to stand before you on my own merit, I'm doomed. But you say, Jesus died for me. I believe that. I want Him as my Savior. You know what the Bible says? Whoever comes to Him, He will never turn away. Whoever believes on Him is passes from death to life. 